Hasrop's just a huckster who's in it for the money, and he's figured out this amazing grift. And all these companies pay the World Economic Forum millions of dollars a year to basically be part of some weird club. Welcome to the show that the fact checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the cloud world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jeffrey. You know, I'm I'm always listening to your podcast, so I never, I just thought it was just this green chicken avatar. I didn't realize you had the whole background and everything. Oh, yeah. We we created this for our podcast, our video appearances. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's brilliant. I love it. It works, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because I was actually thinking before we started, um, you know, I was just expecting a green chicken head that, you know, does the little sort of glowy thing as the sound Mm -hmm. comes out. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, do I put my video on? Do I just put my avatar up? So we're just two avatars, but this is great. It's perfect. Yeah, well, I'll just do a quick uh, on-the-fly intro. It's a pleasure to welcome Doomberg to Bomb Thrower TV. Uh, Over the last 12 to 18 months, they've taken the world by storm. Uh, Fintwit, Substack, uh, co-hosting in Doom We Trust with Grant Williams, which uh, I I love his his outlet as well. And now even here on Bomb Thrower TV. And uh, I said they because I'm not a gender fluid pronoun dropper, but because my, <laughs> understa- my understanding is you're a team and you're yes. the spokes, t- you're the spokes chicken for that team. But when I listen to you and I read the the posts, uh, I get the sense you're the, you know, the, the creative uh, driving force behind the team. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for skipping Davos to come on bomb thrower TV. Yeah. You know, unlike, um, well, just like Elon Musk, we too were not invited to Davos, surprisingly. And uh, just a, a minor correction is this week in Doom with Grant Williams. I, I wouldn't want to leave his uh, his excellent podcast misnamed. Um, and uh, I'm a, I choose to identify as a green chicken, but I, in fact, my pronouns are he, him. And uh, and it is a team, but I'm the head writer and the podcast uh, person. But uh, we have a pretty solid team of you know editors and 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 some research behind uh, the writing and so but yeah it's great to be here and uh, congrats on the launch and uh, happy to have this discussion looking forward to it thanks oh so i did i'll correct myself i said in doom we trust uh, sorry it's it's this week in doom is the, the the show you do with grant williams correct yeah okay well sorry about that no worries um, <laughs> You know, but on the topic of uh, this week being the Davos confab that neither one of us were invited to for some unfathomable reason, uh, you're, you know, I just love your work, like in general on energy and the energy is life equation. And uh, I, when I compare it to what comes out of these shindigs, these narratives that come out of there. I find it hard not to equate environmentalism with Malthusianism. Yeah, there's certainly a strain of it. And historically, if you look at the origins of the modern environmental movement, the Sierra Clubs of the world, it is just undeniable that they have a very ugly history of eugenics and Malthusianism 
uh, at the foundation of, of the thought leaders, you know, they just rolled out this relic Paul Ehrlich uh, on the 60 minutes again. And his, you know, some of his greatest heroes in the books that he, you know, when he writes his acknowledgments are known eugenicists and, and Malthusians. And, and they, they, they believe ultimately they're, they're short human ingenuity is the way that I would describe it. They believe that the capacity for ingenuity is capped and that our resources are also capped, which means that by definition, there isn't enough to go around for everybody and they would prefer there be less people. And I would suspect if you drill a little deeper, the people that they would rather not be on the planet don't look much like them. Um, and uh, and we've written about this a few times. And and to your point about you know Davos and the World Economic Forum, to watch Al Gore bloviate once again about boiling the oceans. 600,000 Hiroshima bombs per day, Doomy, per day. It's, it's, it's so absurd <laughs> and practically obscene that I wonder whether we haven't reached peak ESG World Economic Forum uh, here in 2023. You know, there comes a point where the children can step back and the adults can take back control over the steering wheel. And I wonder whether watching Al Gore scream about boiling oceans, which is such nonsense. You know, as I, I like to tag these people like him and John Kerry as noted scientist Al Gore, um, screaming at the top of his lungs about how humans are boiling the oceans, which is just so... It, it, it can't be that any objective observer looking at this sort of global elite passing around hors d'oeuvres at the cocktail party, having flown in on their on their private jets and, and wonder just how out of touch these people are. Just how they just have no concept or idea how the average person makes it through the day. And um, and you know, to hear John Kerry talk about how they're the chosen ones to save the planet, almost extraterrestrial, you know, it, it lays bare just how delusional these people are. Um, like, can you imagine what India and China think when John Kerry, who married a billionaire and, and you know, uh, was born on third base and thought he hit a triple kind of guy. And, and he comes flying in on his corporate jet to tell them that they shall not develop. They shall not use their fossil fuels to lift their own people out of poverty. Then he jets over to Davos to, to pat himself on the back so hard that he probably leaves a bruise. Um, it's just incredible to watch. It's it's truly obscene. Uh, can't go on forever. And that which can't go on forever usually doesn't. There's a lot in there to, to sort of, you know, double click on or, or whatever the expression is these days. But, um, you know, one of them is the fossil fuel is bad thing. And you you frequently cite Alex Epstein, who said, and and you bring in the whole um, premise that there's no solutions, especially when it comes to energy, there's only trade-offs. And so these people are walking around. I mean, I always say like they're walking around, like sitting in the back of an Uber black, like maybe not a billionaire like Al Gore, but your typical, um, you know, purple haired environmentalist or whatever. They're sitting in the back of an Uber black typing away on an iPhone on their way to like some sort of shindig event about how bad capitalism is, fossil fuels are, and, and never the twain shall meet. And so um, that idea that there is no good thing that comes out of fossil fuels, right? And that we just can flash cut from, from what we're doing now to these, um, you know, so-called friendly, friendly fuels or, or eco-friendly fuels like solar and windmills and things like that without understanding at all the trade-offs involved in generating either type of energy. Um, well, we can talk about that for a sec before we hit into the next beat. 
Sure. Alex Epstein likes to say you can't have a debate about the about fossil fuels without at least acknowledging the benefits so that then you can measure the trade-offs. And we're working on a piece now, I'm not sure when we'll publish it, um, sort of tentative title is Mission Impossible, <laughs> where, where we're describing a phenomenon that we're going to name mass dissonance, where entire cultures believe things that are provably untrue and attempt to reorient their economies accordingly. And physics dictates that it just literally can't happen. And, and we're telling the story, of course, of the destruction of this small town in Germany, where Greta Thunberg, uh, inserted herself into the into the the protests and and posed for the cameras as she was pretending to be arrested by the police and in the ultimate sort of theater. I don't know, I'm sure you've seen the video that's yeah, yeah. viral on you know so at, at its core if if Greta had her way, Germany would have no coal being burned this this winter. And imagine what would have happened in Germany if they had not rushed to bring back on as much coal as they have done. And and the German Greens of course have cut this fake deal um, to uh, accelerate the phase out of coal from 2038 to 2030 in order to give cover for the destruction of this of this little hamlet in Germany in order to get uh, more lignite out of the ground, which, as we say in the piece, is the cheapest and dirtiest form of the cheapest and dirtiest fossil fuels. And the, the, the complete pivot from, from you know, demanding that nuclear power plants be shut down to uh, destroying villages to mine coal using some of the largest earth-eating machines the planet has ever seen is it just lays bare the entire farce of it all the dissonance of it all the, the in germany the dissonance is um, that you can just completely cut out uh, nuclear and fossil fuels and maintain a reasonable standard of living i mean there's a trade there's a there's a, a relief valve somewhere the e equilibrium has to be reached and so when push came to shove even the german greens were ill-prepared to smash the standard of living of their citizens to the extent that doing nothing ahead of this winter would have done, despite the fact that it's been incredibly mild. It looks like the weather's going to turn here soon, and we'll see. But um, it, it's just amazing for me to watch. Like, there's Greta being carried away uh, by by uh, police officers in full riot gear. And if she had had her way, the country would have collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so um, the piece we go on in this one, this will be the first of several where we talk about battery materials for either electric vehicles or, or storage on a the grid. There's, uh, the mass dissonance there is that th th there just does not exist a sufficient amount of these materials to get anywhere near what everyone is modeling and everyone is projecting. And the stock market is completely wrong um, for certain equities. They think that growth at, at a certain rate is 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 never going to run up against a constraint, whether it's nickel, it's cobalt, it's lithium, it's rare earth metals, it's graphite, it's copper, it's zinc. We don't have enough of any of those things to get anywhere near these crazy projections that everyone assumes we have to do in order to save the planet. And then the last point is, what do these people think powers all of the giant machines that will extract, concentrate, purify, and move these materials around the world? It's fossil fuels. It's all just so insane. Um, and ultimately, as we saw in Germany, and as we'll see in the battery material sector, um, physics must be addressed at some point. And fantasies and the bubbles that they create will collapse. And and all of this is just utterly predictable. Um, we wish we could just skip to the answer. The only positive side is we at Thunberg will never run out of things to write about. <laughs> right. Nor will we at Bomb Thrower. But um, when you, you, like you're a physics, you're a physics person. And so you look at these systems in terms of physics and equilibriums and what people don't really get, but you emphasize frequently is that these release valves, when you're talking about a macroeconomic system like energy 
that powers people's everyday lives and supply chains and things like that. The, like everything is going to find its equilibrium. Equilibrium. It's going to it's going to even itself out. But those valves are things like riots and famines and even kinetic wars in extreme cases. And I don't think people get that. And before I kick it over, an example, sort of a counterexample, here in Ontario, and I actually didn't know this number until one of your your pieces. I didn't know that sixty um, percent of Ontario's energy comes from nuclear. And I'll bet you, I'm <laughs> most Ontarians probably don't know that. So Ontario is a pretty liberal stronghold, at least in Toronto and Ottawa. And in, there's a lot of environmentalism and there's a lot of sort of left-wingism. And uh, a lot of these people, it hasn't happened yet here though, to the extent that it has in Germany, but they can, they're, they're, they're soaking in it, this energy abundance, right? This, this affluence of the, that is the standard of living of Ontario that we've been used to for decades and, uh, you know, God willing, we will enjoy for decades more. But we've got nuclear reactors that are slated to, uh, Pickering supposed to shut down in 25, I think, and there's never been, and you can't get a new one approved now to replace it, even though they planned to replace it a while ago. And so I, where I'm going with this is that people don't understand how physics intersects with their lives and and energy is the prime driver of physics. And so, at what point do these people, I guess two questions, at what point do people sort of wake up and go, this isn't going to work anymore? You were saying maybe 2023 is peak ESG. Um, I've been calling like peak cancel culture, peak wokeism, peak hysteria for about 10 years now. So I've been wrong for a long, long time. And, um, you know, and do the people who are leading these policies into this, do they actually... Does John Kerry honestly believe he's on a mission from God to save the planet? I, for him, I kind of think he 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 does believe it. But does a Klaus Schwab, right? Um, I, I sense some disingenuousness there. And so, um, if we need saving from anything, I think at that level, we need we need saving from elites that think they can save the world. But I know I put a lot in that question. Yeah, let, let's start with Ontario, where you are. Um, minor correction: they get about sixty percent of their electricity. From nuclear, which Sorry, is different than energy, right? I'm, I'm um, misspoke, but, yeah. But yeah. that's okay. Ontario proves what's possible. So the Ontario electricity grid is powered 60% by nuclear power, 25% by hydro, which is renewable, 8% um, by wind, a little bit of solar, and then the balanced natural gas. They, have, they burn no coal whatsoever in your home province to generate electricity. And I've driven through Ontario. Looks like a very modern first world Western developed economy. I, I eat at nice restaurants. Toronto's a fine city. Hamilton's a fine city. London's a fine city. The highways, you know, the 401 is a massive highway. It mm -hmm. looks like a normal, nice place to live. Um, yeah. Lots of nature, lots of lakes. Um, the, the air is clean. And it's totally possible. And on Pickering, a uh, little development, our friend uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer over at Canadians for Nuclear Energy yeah. has, has managed to to help win a reprieve uh, for the well, at least one of the Pickering reactors, I believe. So that's a, a story yet to be yet to be told. But the point of Ontario is we have the solution; it exists. Nuclear power. There is no path of decarbonization that does not drive right down the middle through nuclear power. We, it requires no technical inventions. It requires a few trade offs that are totally manageable. The most prominent of which is we have to handle a relatively small amount of nuclear waste. Um, having said that, in 
the sort of benefits category is 90 plus percent capacity factor, always on base load power. Um, and, and it works. It can work. It requires some invention. Uh, sorry, it requires some investment and some, some political cutting of, of, of red tape. And, and what we see um, in, in these in these sort of areas is, is environmentalists will um, impose this work, the political system to impose as many regulations as possible, and then work the courts to sue these things and slow them down, radically driving up the expense. And then they turn around and say nuclear power is too expensive and it takes too long, even though they're the ones who are literally driving it. Um, to shift a little bit, I think John Kerry um, believes his own stuff, genuinely. I, I think he authentically has a combination of hero complex and deep ignorance. I think uh, Klaus Schwab, on the other hand, I'm in the Bent Hunt school uh, of Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab's just a huckster who's in it for the money, and he's figured out this amazing grift. And all these companies pay the World Economic Forum um, millions of dollars a year to basically be part of some weird club. And uh, I don't think he believes most of what he says. I think uh, he's in it for the grift. Yeah, and I think he's... Um... I think the grift is distinctly Marxist in nature or neo-Marxist in nature, which in my mind, like, you know, I know what the, the definition of Marxism and socialism is supposed to be, but in my mind, it's basically let's convince everyone other than us to live at a, at a relatively um, equal state of poverty so that we can, you know, enjoy the trappings of, of elitism. Yeah, there's no question that much of the, let's say, global climate change politics is driven around control. Yeah. And I, I just think that's undeniable. And that's yeah. why I think it, it'll never work in the U.S., for example. Um, the U.S. culture is just incompatible with the degree of control necessary. And we already saw Biden backtracking on a lot of stuff. Um, even the floating of the banning of the gas stoves um, triggered such a violent blowback that they're already walking this back from the edge. You know, the American people, I, and, and, you know, I live in the in the U.S. and I'm prou proud to be a U.S. citizen, and, and uh, I consider myself to be patriotic and would like to see the U.S. do well. <clears throat> the U.S. is not going to tolerate this nonsense for much longer. Um, and in fact, Joe Biden's complete panic around gasoline prices heading into the midterms is proof that we're nowhere near ready or willing or able to implement the kinds of sacrifices that these blowhards at the World Economic Forum are talking about as a as sort of a base case assumption um, that we're all going to be walking around with carbon footprint apps that limit our consumption. I mean, you imagine this happening in, in the US and it, and it flying, it's just not gonna happen. And, and um, you just, like, good luck implementing it in Alabama, in Montana, in Michigan, in, in basically all of flyover country. You might get it done in the cities. Mm -hmm. uh, this is never gonna happen in the vast land area of the US. Population is a different story. I hope you're right. And I think it's even gonna have trouble in some cities in the States, I mean, you know, in Florida, they're probably not going to go for that as long as it's yeah, in Texas, Florida. Yeah. You know, um, much of the Sun Belt, quote unquote. But still, I, I think California, New York, um, and the citizens of of those cities in those states have no idea where stuff comes from, right? So they just assume <laughs> it, that, com um, it comes from, comes from here, Doomy. Yes, this is push, where food comes from. Yes, push a few buttons on a phone, and food magically arrives. Um, yeah. I'd like to say they're very busy sawing down the trunk of the tree to save a few branches. And, yes. um, and that's just, again, it just, this is not going to work. It's not going to be tolerated for much longer. Biden did everything in his power throughout the calendar year, 2022 
to ensure that as much fossil fuels were burned in the U.S. as possible so that he could keep critical energy prices down ahead of the midterms. We haven't even like we haven't even begun to think about thinking about the sacrifices that everyone at the World Economic Forum assumes need to be made. And here, um, people panicked already at five dollar gasoline, five dollar gallon gasoline, which is a fraction of what people pay in Europe and in Canada. Um, mm. and, and it was intolerable politically. Now imagine, you know, what happens when the grid collapses in New England, as it inevitably will. Like there's going to be a reckoning. Um, and ultimately, you know, people's standard of livings are defined by how much energy they get to waste. People everywhere want a higher standard of living. Those two things are critical to understand about how humans will behave when confronted with elitists who are just going to assume that the poor people of the world will be willing to stay poor and that the people in the West who have obtained some some decent level of standard of living will sacrifice it in the name of uh, the, the goddess uh, Gaia. It's not going to happen, in my view. Yeah, it's the famous quote by Munger, who kind of lost a little, uh, lost a little, I'm not as much of a Munger fan as I used to be because he's so anti, uh, he's so anti Bitcoin and you know me, but anyhow, you know, um, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes, right? Yeah. A lot of these, a lot of these grand programs require people to make decisions and choices that are against their own best interests or against their own interests. And um, I've personally believed the whole climate alarmism, the whole climate crisis was really just um, um, varnish for, um, or veneer, sorry, for uh, uh, the impending end of the global monetary system, right? We've got this debt bubble that we can't pay off. There's no way we can ever like America, Canada, Europe, the whole world. We can't pay off this debt bubble. Something's going to give. At some point, we're going to have a monetary regime change, I call it. Um, and so this is like a kind of steering committee effort to say, we need to get everybody, we need to get the rabble to ratchet down their standard of living. Um, I don't think this this premise that if the entire world lived at the standard of living of, uh, of an America or a Canada, we would need four Earths. I just I think that just completely overlooks the efficiency gains we make across the board in almost everything that we can actually plot and chart and see that you know we're getting higher food yields and less land and we're you know all of those kinds of things. So I really think that. Um, the the existing system, the existing entrenched elites, really do think it's existential that the everybody else ratchets down their standard of living, and that means wasting less energy. That's such a great way to put it, and um and that's and 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 the whole thing is actually coming to a head over the next call it decade. Like you're saying, we're at peak ESG this year. I think I think so too, in the sense that. I, I can't see these narratives surviving beyond the end of this decade, maybe even sooner, because things tend to be moving faster than when I say something's going to take five years, it happens three months later. So let's uh, let's uh, take a couple of things because you've said sort of triggered two different thoughts in my head. So I'll take them in order. The first thought is back to this sort of Malthusian, um, let's say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This, this Malthusian 
um, belief that humans are incapable of sustaining the current population size, let alone sort of a reasonable growth in population over time. The Earth is not a closed system. The Earth is bombarded every day with an enormous amount of energy from the sun. And uh, once we build enough machines to figure out how to effectively harness that, either in the form of improved yields or solar power, which um, I'm still a, a reasonably strong proponent of, especially the development of technologies that could allow us to harness it in a way that circumvents the intermittency problem. We are bombarded with so much energy from the sun every day that it would be foolish for us to, to stop trying to develop it, to harness it, to increase people's standard of living. So that's step one. Like it's 10,000 times more energy than we need every day being bombarded uh, from the sun. You know, um, the uh, total photosynthesis is, is less than a percent of the sun's energy. And then a, a fraction of that is edible for humans, you know? So when you, when you think about how much sort of, um, uh, just imagine if, if electricity were free, our, our capacity to, to grow food indoors with, with um, precision lighting and thermal control and stuff would be off the charts and you could, your, your area, you know, would be volumetric instead of two-dimensional. There's solutions to these problems. Mm -hmm. um, and with the combination of nuclear and, and the amount of energy that's being bombarded, to the earth every day and selective use of fossil fuels in situations where they're simply irreplaceable uh, will all just be fine. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so, you know, there's, there's that scenario. Now back to sort of this peak ESG, I'll tell you who is not going to put up with this nonsense beyond the sort of American flyover country, China, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, pick your favorite, um, Korea, pick your favorite countries that, um, that look inward first and, and survey their populace. To understand like what like like that great speech that uh, from oxford the debate club that went viral which i'm sure you saw everybody has seen it at this point like they're not going to choose to stay poor uh xi jinping doesn't care about climate change uh, xi jinping cares about domestic tranquility which is why you saw how quickly he pivoted uh from uh dynamic zero covid to what's covid covid novid <laughs> right i mean literally overnight it was a bit flip as soon as there was like say what you want about the chinese communist party when there are social disruptions, they listen, they pay attention. You might not want to be the individuals participating in the disruption, mm -hmm. but the message was heard, the message was sent, the message was acted upon in very short order, and the propaganda totally flipped. Yeah, The propaganda in China right now is dynamic zero COVID is what bridged us from the very dangerous variants to the relatively benign ones that we're dealing with now, and now that the wave has peaked, um, it's totally back to normal. And and that's the propaganda inside of China. And that's it. Like that's, they're going to do it. That, that shows you that they are highly attuned to the population. And one of the biggest deals of, and look, I no Western analysts can claim to understand China. And as many times as I've traveled there and as much experience as I have with the country and as much as I've read about it, I'm guessing from the West, just like anybody else. So let's put that out there. One of the grand bargains between the Chinese people and the, and, the, and the Chinese Communist Party is you can take away all our rights as long as as much as you want, but you better keep us fed. Yeah. And and as long as there's food on the table, which is why pork, for example, is such a huge cultural thing in China. As long as there's food on the table, the Chinese people will tolerate a lot. One of the reasons why the whole zero COVID thing collapsed is because it was very difficult for people in the cities to get food. Like you want to understand... Chinese politics understand Chinese bellies. Like this is how this is how you analyze China, in my view, and the people that I respect the most that have uh, have pretty good track record in, in that area come to the same conclusion. And so um, this is why, of course, when you look at sort of Chinese strategic investments overseas, like they 
they bought Syngenta and they, 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 they're always sort of um, at critical choke points in the ag sector. And it's not because they're trying to develop power over the West. It's try, they're trying to control the flow of nutrients into their, into their home country. Um, and so, you know, they're not going to look, I mean, they're building out more coal than the world has shut down in the past 15 years. I, they're building 150 nuclear reactors in parallel. And, um, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. That, that's why things like um, one t- single use plastic bans in Canada make me so like crazy because it's just so detached from reality that our policymakers literally come out and say, we're creating a sustainable world. We're saving the environment. Whereas the entire energy output of Canada is like a rounding error in the Chinese economy. And, um, you know, and we think we're going to solve something by eliminating bread clips. I had to like buy contraband plastic bread clips from the States because these cardboard things drive me (laughs) batty. Right. So I've got this secret drawer where I've got like ivermectin, uh, some other stuff and some plastic bread clips, right? It's just ridiculous. And, um, and you mentioned it, you were actually on, uh, the Bonner research podcast the other day, uh, with Joel Bullman. Um, that was, I love Bill Bonner. I've been following him for like 30 years, changed my life when I discovered daily reckoning as a younger person, but it was like, I kind of winced when you said like Canada and Australia are these two countries that should be these global economic powerhouses, especially with respect to energy and commodities. And here we are like, you know, taking victory laps for hobbling the population and crippling the economy and trying to sell Europeans who want to buy LNG from us. And we're trying to sell them like unicorn farts 10 years out. And it's just like, it just, it it it's it never it's unrelenting it just keeps going and going and going this this ridiculous um narrative that canada we could shut off all the lights in canada and unplug like park all the cars and ground all the planes and the world will never even notice we're gone really except for like the lack of hockey that's about it yeah, and the rest of the world is mostly caught up to Canada and hockey uh, as well. And oh, you watch your words there. <laughs> Look, I love Canada deeply. I know the country well. Um, and what I said on on uh, with Joel on the Bonner Show is um, if you take the endowed resources, the three sort of per capita energy commodity superpowers are actually Canada, Australia, and Russia. Um, relatively small populations with huge, unthinkably large blessings mm-hmm. of, of coal and minerals and oil and gas and you name it. Um, and and Canada in particular, fertile farmlands and, you know, great institutions, um, you know, for all of the, our sort of picking on Justin Trudeau, um, Canada has fantastic institutions. Like uh, Canada is a fantastic place to live. And once Canada gets its political act together, Canada could be an energy superpower. And, and one of the things we've said is if you drew a circle around NAFTA, the US, Canada, and Mexico, God, what an endowed set of resources that one particular region has. Um, fertilizer, the, the world's best 
farmland, you know, um, educated workforce, um, you know, free trade between the countries, um, of course, the U.S. military to protect all of it. Um, it, it truly is a spectacular, and in Canada in particular. And so that's why I'm actually hopeful and I'm optimistic because when we do, this is all just politics and politics is much easier to change than physics. That's, you know, that really stands out in a lot of your writing and a lot of your appearances is, is you listen to this and what makes it so frustrating is we're not up against technological constraints, right? We're up against regulatory constraints and regulatory constraints are completely they're artificial. They're made up. They're in somebody's head that says, like, everybody else has to adhere to this because this is what I believe to be true. It's not, there are no technological showstoppers from preventing us from doing, like, raising everybody's standard of living, even bringing uh, so-called third world countries up into a modern industrialized or leapfrogging into even post-industrialized economies, knowledge-based economies. It can happen there's there's ways to do it for everybody. And we have these, again, these Malthusians telling us that, uh, no, actually, we figured it all out. And we have to go this other way where you all basically live in uniform poverty and misery and uh, listen to what we tell you to do. Yeah, uh, the, the the pessimism of the Malthusians, which is the word I was seeking earlier, mm. is, is totally unjustified. And, and as we've said, um, there are no technical challenges to, for example, I get, okay, let's go back, take a step back. Cause I get some crap from people who are fully convinced that CO2 is not a problem and that we shouldn't be fighting about the solutions. We should be arguing about um, the, what they would call the global climate hoax. That's not something we've in, indulged in. Um, and we focus our efforts on the following. It is totally reasonable to decide that we would like to reorient our society around the following equation. In the numerator sits total standard of living that we can allocate to every human on earth. And in the denominator sits carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And we wanna optimize that ratio. Fine, if I take that as an axiom, I don't need to win the global warming is a hoax argument to show how silly we're being, because we mm -hmm. can even do that. We can do that through nuclear power. We can do that through selective use of fossil fuels where they're used and needed most. We can do it with selective distribution of batteries for uh, focusing on hybrids versus um, full BEVs, which are a giant waste of materials. Um, so there are no, literally no, technical barriers to the generation of bountiful energy for every human on Earth. It is 100% political, period. And so we are therefore proactively choosing not to do so which makes me wonder whether if we invented a, a magic solar solution tomorrow that um, somehow defied the laws of physics and allowed us to create bountiful energy that was not intermittent, that we could distribute cheaply, they would find a reason to be opposed to. Like cold fusion? Like if someone actually said, we got it, or it works, it's here? That fusion in general, like we did, we wrote a piece on fusion, which basically fusion is, is, is unneeded and will be used by the political opponents of of nuclear to say, let's not invest in nuclear now because fusion is just around the horizon. And then when fusion gets closer to reality, they'll flip and they'll be opposed to it uh, with vigor. And so um, don't tell me that technology is like this whole nuclear waste canard. It, it's, it's, a, it's a canard. I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned it often and I'm like, okay, so how do we as a society, as a civilization, what do, what what are the best practices for dealing with nuclear waste? Just shoot it underground 300 meters and that's it. 
and you just let it um, let it decay. It's the I I challenge you to find a single person injured by a nuclear waste right spill around the world. We have people dying on oil and gas rigs all the time. We have um, slave labor being used to make solar. Yeah. Um, you know, not a single person that I'm aware of has ever been injured from nuclear waste. Now, you talk about Fukushima, that's a different issue, but nuclear waste as an argument against nuclear is a total and complete canard. The total amount of nuclear waste um, ever generated could easily fit in a basketball court, I believe, or a football field of, you know, a couple of meters, 10, 20 meters high, pick your favorite, depends if you're talking about the US or the world. It's manageable. Again, as far as trade-offs go, you seal the thing um, five times over in various forms of concrete, shoot it 300 meters underground, and then try to figure out a way that that would actually ever hurt somebody. It just wouldn't. Right. I, I just wouldn't. And and if it did, you treat them. Like, mm -hmm. people die eventually. You hope that they die from natural causes after living long and fulfilling lives. But, like, we all meet our maker eventually. So everything is a risk and everything is a trade-off compared to the immediate devastating consequences of choking off fossil fuels. Um, handling a little bit of nuclear waste is a literally a nothing burger. I wasn't going to bring this up until you mentioned we're all going to meet our makers someday. And <laughs> it was an article during COVID in the early innings of COVID 2020, and it was in the Wall Street Journal. So I actually had to look at it to like, where am I seeing this? Is this really in the Wall Street Journal and not on like, you know, some weird, you know, airy fairy site that because of, you know, it was this transhumanist uh, wet dream of like, well, you know what, we should just technologically eliminate death and then live in the metaverse. And here's four different ways to do it, you know, through transhumanism. And it was, and, and, and at the time I said, you know, this is, this is going to become the religion of the technocracy, right? We're all going to like massively reduce our carbon footprints because we're all going to live in the metaverse, really. So it's going to take hardly any energy at all. And um, so there's, I guess it's not really a question. It's just there are people in these, you know, anointed circles who are actually thinking we don't all have to meet our maker eventually. We can just, you know, upload our consciousness into the metaverse and live there. Well, I'm a little bit pessimistic on our ability to solve the ultimate last unsolved problem of physics, which is consciousness. And um, and so I, I'm going to pretend that I have a limited time in the real world, or at least not pretend. I'm going to live as though yeah. I have a limited time in the real world. I think that um, having a, a, an infinite life expectancy would be a horrible curse. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm quite happy being a human and um, doing what I can on this planet to do as well by as many people as possible, leading something useful and valuable for my children. And um, for example, I'm proud of the legacy of the Doomberg pieces that will live on in the internet um, when this green chicken is uh, somebody else's uh, lunch sandwich. <laughs> and um, that's just, the you know, to everything there is a season. I'm not a super religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I, I don't spend too much time thinking about um, preserving whatever it is that my consciousness uh, represents uh, in some sort of egotistical demand that uh, I persist beyond my, my anointed time on this planet. Right. I'm going to pivot just a little bit because I am the Bitcoin capitalist and I've heard you talk about this a couple of times. We're not going to dwell on it, 
Bitcoin mining climate crisis. So I hear you, 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 you dissect the climate crisis and or so-called crisis and energy from every different angle. And I've heard you speak favorably about Bitcoin mining in terms of having a role to be able to um, smooth out uh, grid demand in certain places, peaker, what did you call them? Peak or something? Um, peaker plants, yeah. Peaker plants, that kind of thing. Is there like, I've never heard you say, I've heard you criticize Bitcoin not and crypto from different angles that were all very valid. Like we've we've had a couple of uh, exchanges and conversations about Tether and crypto and, and, and that kind of thing. I've never heard you say, and Bitcoin mining contributes to global warming. That's one of the things I've never heard you say. I'm not trying to pull words out of your mouth yeah. or put them in your mouth, but I've never heard you say that. Uh, well, I, I, let's separate a few things here and, and just I'll give you my my opinions on things and then we could have the discussion from there. Um, I have zero use for crypto and I define crypto as everything other but Bitcoin. Right. Um, I personally am a no coiner, so I've never owned any Bitcoin. But as an outside observer, I can agnostically see that there is an awful lot of people for whom Bitcoin is valuable and there's a bit of a network effect. And for the very same phenomenon that makes gold valuable, um, although gold has a much longer historical track record, if we're being totally honest, mm -hmm. um, um, I can understand why people would ascribe value to what they believe would be a digital variant of gold. Um, and then I can also deeply sympathize with much of the underlying um, desire to have a thing called Bitcoin because it is uh, perceived at least to be um, a ticket out of the modern fiat ecosystem and all of the control and power that comes with it. Um, so crypto, I think we could agree. There are some interesting technologies being developed in the crypto space, but crypto mm -hmm. as defined today is nothing more than an integrated set of Ponzi schemes that are all going through a domino of collapse as we speak. Um, Bitcoin has been adjudicated in the US to be an asset. There's a, a legal way to own it and to be taxed on the transactions that you use it. And so when you combine the fact that it, it has a certain amount of regulatory clarity, um, it is an asset. It is not a security. Um, most other cryptos are securities, as we're finding out, as we've been saying. So. Um, Bitcoin, I understand. There's obviously valuable. There's, there's value, sorry, in in the network and and in the network effect of the people who are mentally ascribing value to it, which cannot and should not be ignored as an analyst. Um, much less of that in the crypto side. Now, Bitcoin mining, given as an axiom that there's value in Bitcoin, and there is value in Bitcoin. People will give you fiat money for Bitcoin at volume today. One of the biggest challenges in managing a grid, especially when you introduce intermittent power sources like solar and wind, is how do you handle that intermittency? And one of the big challenges with the current mostly unworkable solution is you have these what are called peaker plants that exist only to turn on when extra power is needed because solar and wind have let you down. Those plants make no economic sense for anybody to own mm -hmm. if they can't be doing something else in the rest of their time. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And so if you are a power plant and you're going to say to the state of New York, um, 
we will run 24 seven. And the moment you need us, we will give you the electricity you need. We will be your swing producers of electricity to help you dampen the volatility that you yourself have introduced because of these intermittent powers. All of this, of course, is totally avoidable if we just had nuclear power everywhere. So in a world where nuclear is, is, is proficient or is prolific and is everywhere, you don't need peaker plants and therefore you don't need Bitcoin mining to help stabilize the grid. So I take two axioms. Bitcoin is valuable and renewables are here. Given those two axioms, there is an economic case to be had for when there's too much electricity being produced in the grid and renewable and solar are overproducing versus what is needed. You could be swinging off your power production to the grid and onto making Bitcoin uh, or mining Bitcoin, right? Making Bitcoin <laughs> sounds like mining gold, but that, that's all these words are very similar for a reason. So you can imagine a suite of plants because you don't ever have to mine for Bitcoin in theory uh, as a Bitcoin miner. You could turn it off. And so there is a scenario where you incentivize the owners of peaker plants by allowing them to mine for Bitcoin and being the swing producers of electricity that, that allows you to dampen variance in the grid that makes it so challenging and so expensive when you introduce intermittent renewables. And so given the axioms that Bitcoin is valuable and renewables are here, Bitcoin mining makes a lot of sense. doesn't mean it's going to happen. As you're seeing in New York, they're outlawing it. And we profiled this one company, you know, Greenwich Generation, the Genius Generation Station, you know, in in the um, in the Seneca Lake, you know, those Finger Lakes in New York. But they're not going to have that. They're not going to have a power plant that is mostly dedicated to mining for Bitcoin. And they will turn around and say Bitcoin is is adding um, to, to to global warming because um, you're burning natural gas in this case to uh, to, to mine for Bitcoin. Uh, you cannot draw conclusions about a system. Uh, you cannot draw conclusions about a component of a system without considering the total the first and second and third order impacts on the system, you see. Um, and so um, if you want a stable grid, then having peaker plants are necessary if you're going to introduce renewables. And if peaker plants are necessary, somebody has to pay for those things. And to make them economical would allow you to introduce more and more renewable energy into the grid. And so it is what it is. Uh, there's no room for nuance in this debate. But um, we try to have a first principles-based nuanced view on everything, including Bitcoin mining. Um, so that's our view. Right. This sort of leads us to something else. We're getting to the top of the hour, so I'll let you go soon. But I want to talk a little bit about CBDCs, which I kind of view as the anti-Bitcoin. Um, and I know you're concerned about them too. And uh, I see like... The drumbeat is accelerating all through the world. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, movement, testing, white papers, policy positions being um, you know invoked. There's still nobody outside of China really ready with a CBDC ready to go. The few countries that have launched them, they've kind of stiffed, uh, but they're still probably coming. When I think about CBDCs I, and, and what I know about governments, I don't see them launch, I don't see them not being, not morphing into being a kind of um, um, dystopian social credit system, you know? And, and for me, when I think of CBDCs and I just differentiate them from what, from something like Bitcoin, it will not be, um, they won't be tokenized per se 
there will not be key pairs. You won't be able to have your private key. I think you won't even be able to save in the sense that we've known traditionally negative interest rates, expiry dates on cash, and then again, morphing eventually into that social credit system. And this is why I, I'm so um, into Bitcoin, because I think it's the anti-CBDC. But I know that you also have these concerns about CBDCs and um, and the privacy aspects of them and so forth. I think CBDCs crushes, they crush the last vestiges of privacy that we have, and they should be vehemently opposed. Um, and it is un, just impossible to imagine that the temptation to impart that degree of control over the population will be resisted by the same crowd that is uh, is drinking the cult of, of climate change over at the WEF. Like, you have to be a fool to look what happened in China. The, the QCR codes mm -hmm. for COVID were immediately used to control the population. Yeah. Um, you protest, okay, boom, you know, code is red. You can't even get into your own apartment. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the technology for much of this was developed by Western companies. Like this is coming, right? And it's probably futile, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's actually going to come. And, um, and we've said the way in which it'll be implemented is the next time we need a stimulus, you'll get an extra 10 grand if you log into your FedCoin account and capture your, your CBDCs. And it's going to, ha it's going to come. Uh, we're still, it's still worth fighting against. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be inevitable, but it sure feels inevitable. But the, the, the scenario where they decide that you've bought too much um, sugared sodas this week um, is totally real. Um, yeah. You know, are you sure you want to have another case of beer, Mark? You know, you've sure been sucking them back these past two weeks. Um, <laughs> and uh, boy, you've driven. I see. I see you've put on a lot of miles on your car, um, and even though it's it's a plug-in hybrid, you still combusted this amount of gasoline and. We saw that, yes, we know that you live this far away from your parents and maybe your mother is ill, but um, yeah, that's just too bad. You're not allowed to buy gasoline now. Like that's coming. Yeah. And if, and if you think that um, the powers that be are going to be, like what would Trudeau have done to the truckers? Yeah. I was thinking uh, when you started talking, it's like, imagine if they had them last February. Yeah, of course they would have used them. Oh yeah. Of course they would have used them. Um, but you know, this is why what Justin Trudeau did was so dastardly and needs to be, um, needs to be rejected. Like, like on the bright side so this is how i look at this i agree with you that i think cbdcs are are inevitable um and it's to what extent are they going to you know are they going to be as dystopian as you as you say i mean i was just before we started today i was reading uh the white the latest white paper from the digital dollar project which was the guy, he's the former CFTC commissioner. His name is escaping me right now, but I, I was a quick scan and I'm like, this is actually saying all the right things that a guy like me or you would want to see. I don't necessarily believe that this, this viewpoint will prevail. Like it should be tokenized. It should be privatized. It should, you know, pri like I, I applaud those ideals coming out of, those circles, but I don't, I think it's either a creeping sort of um, a pivot into what we're talking about, or it's sort of designed from the outset like this. And this is why, like, I think when I, like Trudeau almost crashed the Canadian banking system when he did that. That's why right. it's like, he, he, he walked it back a week later. And then like, and then days after he rammed the emergency act, like all that happened before the emergency act was even ratified. 
And then he rammed it through the House of Commons and then it was gone three days later. And it was all very like on the outside looking in. It's like, what just happened? And he's like, oh, crisis subverted. But what happened behind the scenes when you looked at like the big five banks crashed and and what was going on, like he started a run on the banks. He started a panic behind the scenes. He almost crashed the Canadian banking system. And I and to me, that was a microcosm of this tension we're going to see between CBDCs and Bitcoin and digital bearer assets and even just even other like I still like my gold. Right. You know, I I'm still a gold bug at heart and I just like stuff that just can't be debased or taken away from me. Um, but I, I actually don't see CBDCs actually winning in the marketplace of, of thought. And so the only way a CBDC is going to happen is if it's a complete totalitarian scenario. And I actually don't think that will succeed in what I'm still an optimist. I don't think that's going to succeed in the West. I think you're right that we're sort of at peak Malthusianism, peak ESG, peak wokeism. And like, I think saner minds are going to prevail over the next bunch of years and maybe the dollar will digitize, you know, it'll become like a stable coin or something. But uh, I think CBDC project after project are going to stiff in the West. And, and there will be these abortive attempts to make them into sort of like a Black Mirror episode. But I really don't see, um, I don't see them winning in the long term in the West anyhow. Well, it is an existential threat to freedom and privacy. And so... Um, our view is that we should relentlessly critique them and never let up. I agree with that for sure. Um, because the moment you let up, they'll sneak right in. Some and, people uh, want, you know, there there are people like I was on a, another uh, podcast a few weeks ago and it kind of occurred to me like while I was talking to them, it was the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. I said, you know, the CBDC is going to live here and it's not going to be regulations and quotas. It's going to be gamified. And so people are going to be like, oh, I'm reducing my meat intake. And then these little things are going to explode on their phone and make pretty patterns at them. And they're, they're, this point system is going to go up. And a lot of people, I think, I think there will be this element of self-selection, especially what you're saying in the cities. Like people are like, oh, yeah, this is like there'll be leaderboards and stuff for compliance to the state. And it will be more of a gamification that will be the attraction to these systems. I hope I'm right um, in that they're going to have a very difficult time forcing people into these systems. If they're trying to incentivize or induce people into these systems, I can't really do anything about anyone who just sort of knowingly enters into them and says, yeah, this is great. Okay, well, then live your life that way. I just what I hope for. Uh, and why I sort of push so hard on the on the digital bearer asset and Bitcoin front is that there's going to be so much momentum and impetus on the other side of that equation that it's never an issue of will the governments allow it. It's just how do they coexist with it? Well, this is why I, we predicted that the way it would it'll be rolled out is through excess benefits in the next stimulus. So you'll yes. still get some benefits. Um, mm. But who, how many Canadians would log into uh, Trudeau coin? For ten thousand dollars, loon coin, yeah, it would be a lot. Oh yeah, um, I, I, you know, ten thousand dollars is a lot of money for most people, and um, maybe it's a smaller number, maybe it's a bigger number, but there will be, if and when they decide to try, it will be 
almost irresistible to most people. That's how they'll design it. Um, and then once you're in, it'll be all Robin Hooded out to make you trade more, so to speak, with the gamification stuff that you're talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. But once you cross that Rubic, the piece we wrote on this, which we published in December, was crossing the Rubicoin. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so you can look it up on doomberg.substack.com. But it, it, it's worth fighting against. I think it's a losing battle. I'm a bit of a pessimist in this case, but um, doesn't mean that we're not going to try and, and that others um, shouldn't try as well. I, I do think this is a, a dastardly invention and um, our opposition to them is vehement, as I said earlier. Okay, so suffice it to say, you're more optimistic on the uh, the energy and human progress side. I'm a little more optimistic on the failure of the CBDC side. Um, so between the two of us, we're almost optimistic. Almost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're at the but top. Yeah. Sorry, go Sorry, ahead. Just, just a last thought. Um, I know that we're at the top of the areas. Ultimately, yeah. we are optimistic. I mean, um, humans have survived all manner of tragedy, um, environmental disasters, political disasters, war, um, strong strong man dictators, you name it. Um, ultimately, there's more of us than there has ever been. And there, uh, as a proportion of us, fewer of us in poverty than has ever been. And we're living as long as we ever have. And uh, by and large, the human spirit, um, we are, you know, dead to nuts along the human spirit. And um, ultimately, if you can't, um, you know, identify the risks and manage them in what we would sort of call defensive pessimism, then you're more susceptible to worse outcomes than you could otherwise achieve. And so it's worth fighting for. But I don't want anybody uh, watching this or listening to it to misconstrue um, our concerns about these areas as as being sort of perpetually pessimistic, because ultimately we're deeply along the human spirit, the human ingenuity, uh, the human capacity, and um, and it's just a superior way to live. And so well said. And the other ace up our sleeve, the other magic bullet that, you know, freedom lovers and optimists of the human uh, enterprise have on their side is these top-down Malthusian, misanthropic, Marxist uh, uh, dictatorship constructs don't actually work. Like central planning doesn't work. And so no matter what happens, if it even appears to work for a while, the long run it, like is against it. And so there's at least that, that you cannot centrally plan something like the human endeavor. So yeah, wholeheartedly agree. It's been a blast, Mark. Thanks. How do people follow you, Doomy? Yeah, so um, primarily all of our work is published on doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we publish six to eight pieces a month, and we are 100% subscriber supported, um, which is the business model we have chosen. Um, free subscribers to Doomberg get pretty extensive previews to our pieces, but uh, to see the full piece, you have to be a paid subscriber. And uh, we're also on Twitter, although less so recently, it's just become a bit of a toxic place. And uh, we have found that um, podcasts are probably a, a better venue for us to showcase our work. Uh, but we are on Twitter, still pretty active, um, at Doomberg T. Add the word T to the end of Doomberg. We have, I think, 232,000 followers at last look. Um, and uh, so we do have a big account and we enjoy tweeting. But, um, um, you know, as a small team and as much as we publish, we're sort of reprioritizing our work towards uh, podcast appearances and, and writing for the Substack. And so, but like I said, it's been a blast and um, looking forward to coming back sometime in the future.
Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a premium subscriber. I highly recommend it. Um, thanks so much, Doomberg. Uh, it's great. You're, you're always, you're everywhere out there. And I really appreciate the um, the uh, support you give to other content creators. And this has been great. Thank you. Awesome. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care.